Welcome. I'm Riley Karsh. I'm Tova Copan. We are thrilled to bring you the We Go Boldly podcast. Let's talk big burning questions, life changes, and maybe a bit of personal business. Let's be bold and brave together. Are you ready? I am. Here comes the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Go Boldly, the podcast. Um, This is Tova, your uh, co-host here with the lovely, wonderful Riley. And um, I'm doing the introduction today because we like to shake things up and keep us on our toes. And it's kind of terrifying because as soon as Riley said, hey, why don't you do it? I was like, I totally now forget everything that you ever say during the uh, entire process. Obviously, I'm very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I remembered before I was put on the spot, but um, I am very excited to be here. We are very excited to be here. And we are um, jumping off on a little mini season um, between season eight and season nine. And so we are going to be diving into kids and mental health and neurodiversity and impacts on the family and all of that good stuff. But first I get to say hello to you, Riley. And how are you today? I know. I'm so excited. I don't think I've ever gotten to answer the question. And well, I mean, I throw myself in there because I'm bossy like that, but this is an exciting change of of scenery for all of us. So I'm good. I am, uh, it's summer and therefore I, all I do is drive my children places and attempt to fit work in between driving my children to places or whilst sitting and watching them do whatever it is they're doing. Um, so I am mentally fatigued from doing that. I'm going to be honest. Uh, but also, you know, very happy that they have these opportunities and that I can give them kind of a, a kick butt summer that they wouldn't otherwise get. So, you know, that's how I am. I hear you. You and I earlier today were talking about like both of our kids this week and your kids next week have like an afternoon camp mm-hmm. and we're not even doing all the driving. Um, like I've realized I'm doing like literally one more day of driving this week oh, and it's yes. one direction. And yet there is this amount of mental juggling that needs to happen yeah. because of this. And it actually really um, goes along with what we're talking about today, interestingly enough, because we're we're obviously going to start with some definitions. We're going to start at a high level and all that good stuff, but we are going to delve into the um, effects and what happens when there is a family member um, or a child in your family that is struggling with mental health issues because there are the, what they consider to be the objective, um, I'm going to say they use the word burdens in the research I was looking at, but the objective burdens and the subjective ones, it, but so there's the, the fatigue may be subjective, but the time and the amount of energy it takes to sort all through that is definitely one of the objective. I, I don't like these words burden, but burdens that falls on a family when they're dealing with somebody within the family that has a mental health struggle. Yeah. Yes. And so we are, we are kicking off the season. Um, If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we don't shy away from talking about issues of therapy and mental health, but at the same time, they're often this sort of companion to what we're talking about. And we don't necessarily 
focus on them. I mean, in many ways, they're all we focus on because so much of what we talk about is really helping people and women, especially find that voice that they can listen to that can let them know I might need help or this doesn't feel right or, you know, things like that. Um, But at the same time, we don't necessarily say, all right, we're going to sit down and have a a frank conversation and look at some of the statistics and look at actually what's happening um, in our, in our lives, in our country. And I think um, we just decided that we, we needed to do that before we went any farther. Yeah. It's, I think it's important for us to step back from sort of all of the other things we talk about, which as you just said, Tilva are so directly connected to mental health. Um, but, and to have that frank conversation, have that direct conversation about mental health in our own lives, in, you know, in our communities, in this country in particular, ever since COVID, I mean, there's so many different factors that come into play. Um, but I think if you, you know, are paying any attention at all, you recognize that we have a mental health crisis and that the uh, services to treat that crisis are just not there. And um, that doesn't mean that there aren't any providers. Of course there are, but there's not enough and they're not readily available and there's issues with insurance. And, you know, there's just so many factors that in, you know, that, that come into play and that become problematic when you're already dealing with something that's very hard. And so there's like yeah. 8,000 layers of hard put on top of hard. And that's, um, that's not acceptable. That's not an acceptable place for us to be as a country. And I think that's a big part of why we want to talk about it because it's so frustrating and it's frustrating as, um, a, a person who has family members who are struggling in any way, a person who themselves is struggling, you know, all of it is frustrating and overwhelming and, and unnecessarily. So like, it doesn't have to be this hard. Um, and that's, yeah. I think a big part of what we want to talk about. Yeah. And, and also just recognize, you know, there we're going to talk and, and we are often very open about what's going on in our personal lives. And I think with this topic, we may be more so and less so all at yes. the same time. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yes. Um, because there are stories that aren't our stories to tell. Um, but I guess I just want to say, know that we are coming from this, looking at this from a place, not just as, you know, women who like to do research and like to look up what's going on and care about the world, but people who have been personally affected by mental health struggles with either individual, like either ourselves or people that right. we love. And so like I said, in many ways, we'll be sharing more. And in many ways, we're going to share less because it's it's not it's not our chance to tell the story. It's not our job to tell their stories. And also a huge issue um, that still is surrounds mental health is a huge amount of, um, and I'm not going to say the word right. I'm, I'm adding in my head, I'm adding a syllable, but stigmatization. Well, maybe I didn't add a syllable, syllable. No, yeah. There's a giant stigma around anything relating to mental health. And it's so rooted in misogyny that, um, we, we have to have the, and, and patriarchy and all these things, um, that I think that's also a big part of this conversation that we need to, we need to be having because destigmatizing mental health issues is, um, while I do believe it is so much better now than it was 10, 20, 30, 
at, you know, so on right. years ago, that doesn't mean it's good enough, right? It doesn't mean we're, we can stop talking about it and working towards having a more open conversation about mental health issues and about treatment for mental health issues and medications and therapies and all the things that, that, you know, ought to be discussed without any level of disdain or uh, judgment from people. Yeah. And I would say that we are in the demographic maybe that stigmatizes mental health any everything the least, you know, we are white women who are college educated. Right. So we are, and it is grossly stigmatized for us. And we are probably the least group affected by that, right? Whether, because if you are coming from it, from a different culture, different race, different ethnic experience, if you're a man, I mean, there are so many other levels. Now that doesn't make it easy for, for like, like I said, it's bad for everyone, but we're probably in the, the demographic that is the least affected by the negative stigma. Um, and, and I think that, you know, so much has changed when it comes to understanding mental health, um, in the last 20 years, in the last 40 years, I mean, psychiatry has changed significantly. I mean, it was not that long ago that they were like, well, let's do a lobotomy. That seems like a good plan. Right. Right. Like, and only recently are there even, is there even research going to medications that can treat some of the more severe mental illnesses? And frankly, a lot of times those medications are used to treat something else. It's not even that the research is going to it. It's that they're treating something else and they're like, oh, it clears up your skin rash and it helps your bipolar. Amazing. Like, right. (laughs) And and that may be an extreme example, but that's essentially what has happened. Yeah. It's happening with a whole host of um, treatment options, right? Like even my (laughs) I, so I suffer from migraines and I've, these, this is not obviously not a mental health issue, but it's a a health issue. And even the treatments for migraines are, are, you know, the daily treatments are medications that are used for something entirely different. Um, and people, uh, I don't think people realize as much as maybe I personally would like them to how often women are not researched in, in all of this scientific research, but also just like kids and minorities and anyone who's not, you know, a, a white man for the most part is not often included in these studies. And we know that, um, that that matters in terms of treatment plans. We know that that has an impact on how people get treated and and what happens when you go to the doctor. Um, so I, I think that's also, you know, an important aspect of the conversation. Yeah. And so, um, so we're going to have this conversation. We're going to see how it goes today. Um, in this episode, we're going to focus mostly on, you know, mental health struggles and how they can affect your family, either for you personally as a caregiver or when it's someone that you love that is struggling. Um, there are, you know, as much as there are not resources, there are resources, right? There are, there are places to go. There are organizations that are working on providing help. Um, 
and there it's less and less stigmatized. And, and it, you know, I even think of, and I, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast or just with you chatting with you, Riley, but um, I recently read a book and one of the main themes of the book was uh, postpartum depression. And I, I was reading the book, not realizing the book was written in present day. And so when they like flashed back, it was to the nineties and they were talking about how poorly the understanding of postpartum depression was when this woman was a child. And I mean, that wasn't in my head, that wasn't that long ago. And yet at the time, you know, this husband was forced to essentially quit work to try to figure out a way to take care of his wife. And he was considered one of the good ones, right? Like, and, and he quit work to take care of his wife because there wasn't either it was, there was too much stigma attached, but also there just wasn't enough conversations. And I think, you know, you can see the difference now. Now there still isn't enough services. There's not enough research. There's not enough understanding, but I do think there's many more conversations that we are now having about postpartum depression. Um, but once again, I don't know that that's hitting everyone. I don't know right. how that's heard in every corner of this country um, because what we hear and what others hear is not always the same. Yeah. Why don't we um, take a quick break? When we come back, we'll do some definitions and then um, we can talk more about this a very uplifting topic today. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back, everyone. Tova here. I'll admit, when I think of a coach, I immediately think knee-high socks, whistles, and clipboards. Is it because I love Ted Lasso? Maybe. I mean, I think it's a good look for you if I'm being honest. Thanks, I think. Anyway, that's not the kind of coaching we want to talk to you all about. True. We are talking about life and transition coaching, though I do still love a clipboard and a tube sock. Both Riley and I are lucky to have worked with incredible coaches throughout our lives. Before that, though, we struggled with where to start, believing in what coaching could really do for us, and, of course, putting ourselves first. Taking the leap and working with our coaches made all the difference. They gave us direction and support when we needed it most. Now, we are fortunate enough to be coaches ourselves, and we're excited to pay it forward. We can help you figure out where to start, create a roadmap, keep you accountable, and get to living your limitless life. Sounds pretty great. So if you want to figure out your next steps, check out our services at goboldlyinitiative.com services. We can't wait to talk to you. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the show. As I was saying before we took our break, uh, we need to do some definitions. So we're going to do that for you. And then we're going to dive even more into um, mental health and what it what's happening for us and what's happening in the country. So um, Toba, you did the research here and you have a definition, which I actually find very handy for uh, what we mean by mental health. And so I'm just going to read that for everyone. She wrote this, I'm sure you got it from a scientific journal. Um, mm -hmm. It says mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make healthy choices. Um, so it's <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. Um, it's all encompassing, right? Like it's your if you're thinking about mental health, 
try and think about it in a holistic manner and not just the sort of stereotypes we see portrayed in the media and movies and in books and things like that of like somebody who's just gone crazy and is running through the streets. Um, that's not really, I mean, that does that happen? Of course it does, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Um, so why, you know, how does mental illness happen? How does it come about? Where does it come from? Um, obviously we don't have all the answers to that. No one does. And it would be great if we did, cause then maybe we could treat it better. Um, but in general, it's, you know, it's, there's a variety of genetic and environmental factors that impact your mental health. So you might have inherited traits, um, which is super fun, <laughs> you know, it depends on your, your genetic tree of where you've come from and the people in your family, and that can impact your mental health in a variety of ways. But it also comes from things like environmental exposure before birth, right? Something that is really not talked about that often were, you know, was your mother exposed to severe toxins and did that get into your system while you were in utero um there's so many different things that can happen that can impact your mental health and then of course there's brain chemistry right there's your how does your brain work some brains work one way and some brains work another way and that is just a part of um I would say it's a part of evolution you know it's just what happens in the brain and in the biological organisms. Um, we all are evolving all the time. All that's, if you believe in evolution, which I do, <laughs> we're all constantly evolving. So I think these, some of these things come from that process. Um, so those are our baseline definitions. Yeah. And I want to add one thing and I, I, it is really important to me that we include this always in the conversation and bring this up. And I, I didn't include it and I didn't read about it. I with is annoying. Um, it is also, as we're listing, what do we say? Social, emotional, psychological, physical. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, yes, um, Riley, you read the part about the brain chemistry and the neurotransmitters. And I think on one level, we're like, okay, yes, that's in your brain. Your brain is an organ. It is a physical organ in your head and it is attached to your body and it is something physical. But then when you're like, oh, is your stomach ache because you're anxious? It's just in your head. Well, your head is attached to your body. And like, I think this is something, you know, I, I said to you that my stomach didn't feel well this morning. And I think I'm more anxious about just the day and the week and the stress than I realize. I often take cues from my body. Like I'm feeling out of sorts. I think I need to meditate. I'm feeling like, and I'm physically feeling out of sorts, whether it's, you know, I'm struggling breathing. I'm having, you know, difficulty taking a deep breath or my stomach is a mess. And I just feel like for whatever reason, we love to talk about our mind and body as if they are not connected. And I understand talking about like a soul and a spirit, but when we're talking about mental health and we're talking about mind and body, they are all together. And you know, how often, um, and maybe it's just because I watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy over the years, but like, <laughs> do you read about or you see um, someone having a physical ailment that affects their brain chemistry, you know, lead poisoning, for example, or I mean, just re like literally two days ago, I was talking to a family member and they had a conversation with like a friend from high school who... Um, had recently 
you know, given everything up, moved into a, a nursing home because they were struggling with dementia, really intense dementia. And a nurse or someone within the nursing home started paying attention and thinking, I don't, I don't think this person has dementia. It was the medication they were taking for their dementia. That I mean, yeah, so they had a beginning stage dementia, but not like shut down your house and move into a nursing home stage. And it and so there are so many things that happen to our bodies and it goes both directions. It's mental health can evolve, you know, can result in panic attacks and sweats and physical ailments. And it, I mean, it just goes both ways. And I really think we do a disservice to a lot of people who struggle with these things to not just emphasize that they are so close together. Yeah. Yes. I think that's such an important point. And, you know, as parents, um, it's also, I think, extremely helpful to know because people or just as people in the world, the way in which you may manifest symptoms of a uh, mental health issue can be vastly different when you are a child versus when you are an adult, when you are a woman versus when you are a man, it like not all the symptoms are the same. And sometimes if you don't know what they are, which is often right. Like a lot of us don't know because it's not something that's talked about. Like you just said, um, then how are you going to know that if your kid has a stomach ache every day before school, that it's not just them, like, I don't want to go to school that it's, you know, maybe it's something actually going on. Um, and so recognizing these things becomes extremely helpful in, in, in family systems and communities and things like that. Cause, because if you don't know what they are, how can you, um, respond appropriately? Right. Um, so and I yeah, think that's really I, you know, important. And the, you know, the reason, like I just highlighted it, you know, I, I have a migraine tracker and I remember like when I went through it the first time um, on, and I, I haven't used it since, which I should engage with it more. But, but the first time I went through the questionnaire, when I had migraine, one of the questions was like, do you feel anxious? And like, there was a whole bunch of mental health questions that were attached because they were trying, you know, the, the whole point of the mental health tracker was an app to figure out like, what are your triggers? What is causing your mind, you know, migraines. And, you know, there was a list of like, you know, what food did you eat? But also it was like questions about your mental state and your mental health. And so that was so validating for me to read that and be like, oh, okay, cool. They go together. It's not just in my head. Right. Well, that's such an important point because if you are somebody who suffers from physical, um, physical reactions to whatever, you know, anxiety or depression or, and quite frankly, anyone who's dealing with anxiety or depression is having physical symptoms, um, whether they realize it or not, because you right. just, it just, as you said, they're connected, but to be able to have people believe you when you say, no, I'm just mm -hmm. so tired. I can't get out of bed that like, that's a real thing. It's not that you're just making it up somehow that it, that's a real physical feeling in your body. Um, and it's connected to feeling depressed or feeling anxious. Um, so it's super important that we pay attention to those signals that our bodies are giving us and that people around us are sending us the more attuned you are to other people's bodies and reactions. Um, the more likely you are to be able to help if that's, if that's appropriate in the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we, we can dive into sort of the current state of mental health in our country, but, you know, while this feels like a heavy or dark conversation, um, two things I want to say 
to say maybe it's not. One is it going through this can be so isolating. And one of the best ways to deal with that is to talk to people about it. And so hopefully if you're listening to this and you are struggling with a mental health struggle, either yourself or somebody else in your family, um, you can experience the, um, I don't know, joy might not be the right word, but relief in knowing that you're not alone. Um, But also as we begin to sort of talk about um, kids and mental health crisis with kids, um, the amazing thing about kids, I will not say that they are resilient because yes, I think they're resilient, but I also think that we try to like pass off a lot of really bad behaviors as adults be like, well, kids will get over it. They're resilient. Um, But, you know, mental kids can learn healthy coping mechanisms can, you know, when kids are um, identified early as struggling with mental health issues, there can be a lot of healing done um, in a way that is harder as an adult and and is harder if you've spent your life for 25 years struggling with a mental health and illness that was undiagnosed. So there are, are benefits to having these conversations and to look at the families and the kids in your life and be aware of what to look for and be aware of, um, yes, it can be scary and overwhelming and horrible (laughs) to be dealing with a child's mental health struggles, but, um, there is hope because they are so young. Yeah. It's, I, I look at my own life. Right. And so I think I've been pretty open about this on the show. I struggle with depression and I have forever, right? Like I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't. So it's clearly both environmental and neurological. Um, and I was not treated for that as a kid. And now if my mom is listening, she'll be like, Oh, I can't believe you're talking about this. Um, (laughs) but you know, she tried to get me treatment and I refused. So let me just be clear about that. And then <laughs> back in the that time frame, it just wasn't looked at as something you did with kids, right? Like kids didn't get therapists. And I've heard so many jokes about, oh, every kid in Manhattan has a therapist and goes to Starbucks, right? Like, like it's a bad thing. Like somehow we're making fun of those families because the kids are getting extra help. I don't, I don't understand it now as an adult, as a kid, I was like, no, nah, I don't need that. That's crazy. Why would I do that? Um, I'm not talking to a stranger about how I feel. I'm not even talking to my parents about how I feel. So why am I going to talk to strangers? Um, but now I think I look back and I go, well, had I been open <laughs> to those conversations, my twenties would have been so much easier, right? Like I would have, like you just said, Toba, I would have had the tools and skills, hopefully to deal with a lot of the big emotions that I was feeling and the big overwhelming scenarios that, that I was facing. And it just would have been a lot easier. It's like, you know, it's easier to learn a language when you're five than it is when you're 40 for most people, right? It's the same thing. It's easier to learn these tools up front and get ahead of things than it is to learn them after you have some like 20 years of ingrained habits in your mind and your body. Um, And so I, personally think everyone should have a therapist and everyone should talk about their feelings all the time. Now that would probably get annoying and overwhelming, but like, you know, everyone should learn these social emotional skills. And even when we look at education today, it is moving in that direction, right? Like when I, when we were kids, no one ever talked about social emotional skills. That wasn't even a phrase that people used. Um, And now it's like a whole part of the curriculum. So 
I do, like I think you said a little bit ago, I do have a lot of hope that things are getting better. Things are getting destigmatized. It's a little bit easier for our kids' generation than it was for us. Um, and I and I just think that being able to have those kinds of tools that will allow you to deal with the difficult moments that are inevitable in everyone's life, no matter where you come from, no matter what you know, uh, part of society you are coming from, you are going to face difficulties and having good toolbox, having a good toolbox of skills to deal, to help you deal with those things is, is incredibly beneficial. Everyone will benefit from that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, before we take our next break, let's, let's just get, uh, let's get through this, the current state of the mental health in our country. (laughs) Um, and I have some thoughts on on as we go into it um, with kind of what you just said about how in some ways it's easier for kids and I and I think for some ways it's harder. Mm-hmm. But so if you if you don't know, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has declared a national mental health emergency among children, teens, and young adults. So prior to 2020, there had been a steady um, decade long rise in depression, anxiety, and mental health concerns, with suicide becoming the second leading cause of death for 10 to 24 year olds by 2018. Um, Since COVID uh, rates of all kinds of mental health concerns have increased among youth. Recent surveys have found that more than 68% of teens report clinically significant anxiety and over 52% report clinically significant depression. Um, Also there's ADHD and OCD and trauma, loneliness, grief, and stress. And I wanna say something here. Um, because I a hundred percent believe that mental health in our country has gotten worse for kids, um, as many things have. Um, and I think that, you know, social media has a big part of that and just all of the information overload. That being said, how many people, family members, friends, did you know who, when they were kids, when they were teenagers, they were like sullen and people were just like, oh, they're just going through their teen phase. Or they were like, you know, in a dark place or they were moody and they wouldn't talk to you. And in maybe in some ways, 100%, those things are a normal thing for a teen to go through. But if you would have asked those kids in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 60s, and if you would have armed them with a little social and emotional skills and you would have given them a survey I think there would have been a lot of anxiety and depression. And so, um, yes, I think things have gotten worse. Um, and I, I certainly know COVID was a massive contributor to that because especially with kids and teens, it's such a social time and there was so much isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also think that this is like, this is like, oh, now suddenly everybody's autistic or everybody's ADHD. It's like, no, we just have words to put to behaviors that were dismissed before. Right. So I, I, I want to say like, maybe, maybe it's not happy. Maybe it's like, no, it really, it's always been really bad. <laughs> um, but I think it's good. I think it is empowering to be able to put words um, to changes. And I think one thing is important to remember, and then we'll take a quick break um, that, that time period and, and, you know, they highlight 10 to 24 or 14 to 24. I think you and I could say like birth to 24, Yes, but <laughs> are such critical stages of development. It is at this point that, 
um, young people are going through physiological changes. They have to figure out how to have autonomy, forming their identity, um, socio, social, social and emotional and life skills, getting job. I mean, job training. It is just, there's so much happening. And then all the physical changes, I mean, significant mm-hmm. physical changes, um, that it is no wonder that kids would be experiencing, um, all of these things and depression and anxiety and everything as well. So on that happy note, um, we're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to come back and talk about like, okay, well, what happens when someone in your family has a mental health struggle or concern? How does it affect your family? And then what, what can you do? Um, and what can be done to help navigate that? In case you didn't already know, we love talking. True story. More than simply talking, we love researching, prepping, and bringing this podcast to life. We launched We Go Boldly with the goal of reaching people dealing with the kinds of questions and concerns that we also face. Things like how to hear my inner voice, how to make sure my habits are worth it and stick, how do I feel my feelings and still manage to function. After years of personal work and lots of trial and error, we realized we have a lot to share on these topics. Now we've been broadcasting for over a year and we are proud of our podcast. And uh, to no one's surprise, we still have a lot to say and talk about. We sure do. We need your help to keep going. Every episode takes time and money to create, and we would love your support. So if you like what we are doing, please support us by joining our Patreon community and becoming a monthly subscriber. Join our Patreon community today at patreon.com slash we go boldly. We are so grateful to all of our supporters. Now back to the show. Okay. Welcome back. Um, so, you know, if you um, have someone that has a mental health struggle in your family, and this can be a child, it can be a parent, it can be a spouse, it can be a sibling, it can be somebody farther away, right? It could be an aunt or an uncle because it's going to sound silly, but like those are your parents' siblings, right? It can be a grandparent, it can be a cousin. I mean, I think depending on how close your family is in your family structure, um, any mental health issue can sort of shake the foundation of a family. Obviously, if it's an immediate member of your family, it's even more so. But I think anytime there can be a big sort of uprooting and shaking of a family. Yeah. Um, I just want to jump in for one second. It's not, I, I think, yes, all of that absolutely is true. And I think it can also define a family, yeah. right? Instead of just shaking it, it could define a family system from the outset, right? If you are a child of parents who have mental health struggles, that impacted your entire family structure and how your family functioned and therefore impacted your development um, from birth, right? Like that's not, it's it's not like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, 10, when you're 10, everything goes haywire. Usually, I think these sorts of mental health issues will be present from the, from the get-go. And that can just shape how you view families, what your family looks and feels like, how you are raised, all of those things. And so it's important to recognize that mental health issues can 
completely dominate your experience as a human, <laughs> whether yeah. it's from your parents, whether it's your kids, whether it's your, as you said, extended family of some variety, or even in, you know, in your community, a close friend, things like that, it can define your experience as a person. Yeah, I think that's, it's really important. And I, I think you're right that, you know, it doesn't even have to be somebody that you met in your family that has had a struggle with mental health. Um, you may never meet that person, but they can leave an imprint on, on a family and what's talked about and what's not talked about. I mean, there is, I haven't, I haven't read the book yet. Um, it is on my list, but I listened to an interview with someone who significantly struggled with suicidal ideations and suicidal thoughts and attempts to, um, commit suicide. And, it was a interview on fresh air and there was a conversation that, that the interviewer Terry Gross had with the author about how do you talk about these things? Because if you do it the wrong way, there can be a spike in attempts. Like you give people ideas. And, and so I think that a lot of families who struggle with mental health in the past will sometimes shut down any conversations about it, right? Like, or they talk about it all the time, like it can go both directions. And yes. so, um, you know, it it is going to affect your family. Um, and there isn't, there isn't a roadmap for how to handle this from one family to another. I don't think that there is, there might be the best way, <laughs> but- I think there's like a million wrong ways and there's a million ways that are somewhere in between. And so when your family has somebody in it, um, especially in the immediate family, whether it's a spouse or a child, um, you know, it, it falls on both that individual and also the rest of the family to figure out how to navigate it and navigate it in a healthy way that is both safe and healthy for the person struggling and then safe and healthy for everyone else. Um, this would be why it's so isolating and hard to do. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, and then if you add in the stigma associated with any kind of mental health issues, right, then yeah. no one is talking about it outside the family because the, there's shame and uh, fear and worry about social ostrac what's the word I want ostracism um yeah. because of whatever's happening in your family it's no different than if you grow up in a in a family of alcoholics you know people when you grow up in a family that has alcoholism in it you don't talk about it with other people you don't tell other people that this is what's happening um because it's shameful it feels shameful it's not but it feels shameful um and so no one talks about these things it's also, you know, just as we started with this conversation of, you know, there are stories that we have that aren't start our stories to tell. Mm -hmm. We have stories to tell about us, about our lives and how they're affected by somebody with a mental health struggle. Um, our families and, and your families, you know, have struggle, have stories. Everybody has a story. I know um, I was recently talking to a friend who um, son has a lot of physical limitations um, and some educational struggles as well. And he is going to a camp um, this summer uh, when his summer school is done. That's for kids who have these limitations. 
but then there is a sort of co-camp that goes with it for the siblings of kids who have those limitations. Um, because those kids have a different experience than not better and not worse, but a different experience than if their sibling was completely able-bodied, right? And so the amount of energy that it takes their parents to help him and make sure that he's getting everything that he needs and the support he needs. I mean, they have different parents than he has. And so those parents have a story to tell. Those siblings have a story to tell. Their lives are shaped. They're experiencing things differently. And then he has a story to tell. And all of those stories are valid and real And yet it feels like, especially in the mental health, especially when it's something that you can't see from the outside. Um, And by the way, I'm not dismissing the difficulty it is to be the family member, the person or a parent with a physical disability, but it's a different experience when it's not something you can see from the outside. And all of the family members who are around somebody who is struggling with a mental health struggle, have their own stories. And yet so often they are not shared with the world because it's not their story to tell. Right. And yet they have a story, a very real story. And there's, this is where I think it becomes so difficult, right? Because it is their story to tell it's their story, but you have a sense of um, either you may have a sense of shame about it. You may have a sense of loyalty about it protectiveness. Um, there's so many different feelings that come into play. If you have, you know, I don't want to say the sidekick story because that's a terrible way to phrase it, but you know, the, if you're the, not the main character in the story, that doesn't yeah. mean you're not the main character in your own life, that you're not the main character in your own experience of the whole family story, right? Whether it's, you know, it may be a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a, a parent, a child, all of the above, you still have a a voice in that. And so figuring out where to draw the line of what you can and can't talk about, where to um, set some boundaries around, you know, your own experience of whatever somebody else is going through, because you do, you do experience it, especially if it's someone you, you love and care about, um, or who loves and cares about you, that becomes extremely complicated. And that is why we get therapists who have confidentiality requirements yeah. <laughs> and you can talk to them about these things. Um, and, yeah. And that's you know. why family therapy is important, but also yes. individual therapy is yes. important. Um, well, know, right. I- because you want to be able to say the thing that might hurt the other person, right? Yeah. Like you want to be able to say it. Because saying it gets it out of your system, gets it out of your body. And that's super important. Like maybe you're really angry. Maybe you are, you know, your sister had uh, struggled your whole life and you didn't get the same, you felt like you didn't get the same level of attention and you're just pissed off about it, right? Like that's a valid feeling and you need to be able to say it, but maybe you love your sister and you don't want her to feel bad about whatever she's going through. And so, so you have to like, figure out where can I say this safely and take care of myself. And that is all about setting boundaries, which um, I read an article recently about therapy speak. And I, I, and it said, it suggested that we not use these sorts of therapy speak, but um, I feel like setting boundaries is a, is a reasonable thing to talk about. So I'm going to keep talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
the other thing that I think that is, you know, hard is when you are the parent of a child. And I read an article that talked about parents of children who have mental health problems. They, and I had mentioned at the very beginning, the objective burden, right? So these are the costs. The expense for evaluations can be astronomical. Um, medication, therapy, other treatments. The fact that so many um, mental health providers do not take insurance. Mm-hmm. And I was recently talking with a friend who has whose husband's a therapist, and he is very close to no longer taking insurance because it is just a hassle. He has to fight with them to get paid and they have made it so difficult. And yet he keeps doing it because he thinks it's really important to provide mental health services through insurance. Because for some, many people, including myself, it's the only way you're going to be able to afford mental health care. Right. And And so- it's such a mess. I think that's such a common refrain that you hear from providers too, whether they're taking insurance currently or no longer accepting insurance. They're all saying the same things of like, I can't even navigate this system. It's too much of a burden on my life to be able to navigate this insurance healthcare system that is clearly broken. I mean, I hate using the word clearly because everyone's always like, well, I don't know, um, too many writing classes. Uh, but yeah. it, in my opinion, it's broken. Like there's, yeah. it's just not working. If people aren't getting the health, the healthcare that they need and mental health services is healthcare. Um, yeah. then how, you know, what are we doing as, as a country? Like, what are we doing that we're not right. providing this? And, and if you want to look at the economic effects, right. So all of the money, you know, all of the, the actual costs plus time, time spent arranging and driving to appointments, time off work to provide care, work days like that you're missed. They said over 60% of parents with youth with mental health problems report that caregiving for their children's mental health negatively impacts their work schedule and availability. Another national study found that caregivers of youth with mental health problems end up spending less time in the workforce. And these are older studies. This is before the whole decade of decline. This was in 2005 and 2007 were these studies. Right. And so um, that's it. There's an economic cost. You look at like, I don't know, March Madness, how much less work gets done in March because of people watching basketball games. Well, have we put a number? It's got to be in the billions of dollars of work lost because of not just taking someone to an appointment, but finding a place like looking for a place. So I will use myself as an example. I need a psychiatrist. And I have like, I went to my doctor five years ago and I said, I think I'm depressed. And he was like, you just have three kids. You're not, you're just tired. And I was like, no, I'm depressed. And you're going to listen to me. And he put me on some medication and it helped. Well, I've basically been on the, it was six years ago, not five years ago. I've basically been on the same medication for six years with very little change. Now I have seen a therapist during that entire time and I have done, you know, multiple time a year check-ins with my doctor. So it's not as if I'm just like out on my own here, but I've never seen a psychiatrist. So I want to see a psychiatrist. I am a pretty functional human adult with insurance who wants to see a psychiatrist. Um, I have called my insurance company multiple times to get lists of psychiatrists that are in plan. At least 50% of them, if not 75%, either are no longer in the area or aren't no longer taking the insurance. Then you add the level of people who are 
not in the area, not taking insurance, but also not taking new patients. And it has been a goal of mine for six months to find a psychiatrist. And I'm kind of like, okay, do I just like start the process over again? And maybe there'll be somebody new. Like I don't even know where to go and I'm pretty confident. So I haven't even made an appointment or driven myself to the appointment, but that's what parents experience all the time as they're researching and looking and trying to find a caregiver. And then they start with one place and then that doesn't work out. So they have to go to someplace else. So like, these are all the things that are lost and are burdensome because the system doesn't work. Not even just the basic, oh, they have to drive them to an appointment. (laughs) Right. And then in between all of that actual physical work and then the mental work of like trying to deal with the logistics, you have the stress and anxiety of having a loved one with a mental health issue. So you're you know, if you're you know human and have any empathy at all, you're feeling some kind of way about that, right? Like you're not just sitting there going, oh, okay, oh, well, um, you know, you're putting in the time and the energy to find a person because you actually care about the outcome, right? You care about what's going to happen to that person and how that person's life is going. Yeah. And so you have that burden on top of everything else. And that level of stress on, you know, if you're a parent of a kid who's struggling, if you're a child of parents who are struggling, it is intense. Like it is a heavy, heavy burden to carry. And we don't have to, you know, if you're listening to this and you are a parent of a child or a teen who um, is struggling with their mental health, you know, you're like, okay, we know this, but if you don't, you know, the studies, study after study shows that parents who are dealing with this deal with a significantly higher level of their own mental health struggles and their own level of stress. And they need support because they are even more exhausted than the average parent, which as far as I can tell is pretty exhausted. (laughs) So, um, you know, it is, it is, um, on one hand, uh, very demoralizing when you think about the current state. Um, but there are things that, you know, you can do, right. If you, if you are a parent, um, or a spouse, a lot of these things, I think work for both of somebody who's struggling with a mental health, um, crisis, you can remind yourself (laughs) that, um, helping one member of your family's mental health struggles, helping them, um, helps the well-being of the entire family. You could be breaking a cycle. You could be starting a new tradition. You could be, you know, handing down, um, a whole new world to all of your children, right? Not just the one who is specifically struggling. Um, a long time study of adolescent depression found that the researchers found that treatment as the treatment progressed and the teens felt better, their parents' own symptoms of depression improved as well. I mean, that I don't think is at all surprising to any parent. I mean, I was I was at one son's baseball game last night and I was watching the other son on the little video and he got hit by a ball. It wasn't a pit, it, whatever. But, and I was like, I mean, I could practically like my side hurt because I was like, oh my gosh, he got hit. So I don't think it is at all surprising that if your teen feels better, your child feels better, you feel better. But um, 
but it helps everyone in your family. So it may feel like all the attention is on one person. Um, and it might be, but, but you are helping everyone in your family. Yeah. You're helping the whole system function better. Um, I also like in this list, this idea of de-stigma, oh my goodness, de-stigmatizing mental health yourself, right? Like it's part of the reason I talk about my own struggles with depression on this show, even though I find it extremely uncomfortable to talk about. And I know that like, there's this little voice in my head that's going, what about the repercussions of telling people that this is something you've experienced, right? Like I'm never going to get a job again. Um, (laughs) It's, I still force myself to have these conversations and to say the words out loud in public on the podcast, because it's extremely important for my family to hear it. It's important for like up and down the the family tree for them to hear that it's okay to talk about and that yeah, it's safe. Like I am safe to say these things. If somebody is going to send me a message and be like, I hate you because you have struggled with depression, I am not going to fall apart, right? Like it's not going to destroy my world, Um, which obviously they're not going to send me that. I I can't imagine someone actually doing that, but if they did, my, I, nothing's going to crumble for me. I'm still okay. Like everything's still all right for me. Um, And the more I talk about it, the more other people will feel comfortable talking about it. So I encourage people to have these honest conversations in safe places for them. You know, obviously you don't want to tell somebody who, um, will make it worse for you, right? Like if you're struggling with bipolar disorder or something and you tell somebody and they're like shaming you for that, that's not, that's not helpful. Um, but being able to talk about it with people who you feel comfortable with and you feel safe with is, is endlessly important. Yes. Um, a hundred percent. I think it also goes to you know, you destigmatizing it outside your family, but destigmatizing it within your family. Yes. So if you notice somebody struggling, um, reach out to them and and ask, you know, ask how are you doing or how are you feeling? Or, you know, um I know that my children's pediatrician has talked about how since COVID, his job has changed from, you know, way focused on the physical to the 50-50 basically with mental health and physical with the kids. And his, um, I want to say it was not somebody close to them, but someone in his daughter's school, maybe in middle school, she died by suicide, not his daughter, but somebody else in the school. And, you know, that really caused him to do some deep diving into what helps. And he said the, the biggest thing that can help kids, um, and this is obviously if they're in a healthy relationship with their parents, um, but is to have continual conversations with their parents and to keep talking. And so, but I think it helps, you know, we need to destigmatize, not just saying how you're truly feeling, not just like, oh, I'm fine, but also um, let people know that like, even within your family, that it is okay um, to ask for help it is okay that to, to use these tools, you know, um, I think hope, um, that I have, um, struggled in the last like year with some panic attacks. Um, we're pretty sure it's not, um, any heart related, but I do have an appointment with a cardiologist. So just as a triple check, cause we've already mm-hmm. kind of checked. Um, but the panic attacks and I, um, was able, um, more recently, you know, they, it feels like a heart attack. 
um, or what I think one would feel like. Um, but I was able to, with a meditation, actually like calm myself down. And the one meditation I was using had a lot of grounding techniques. And I know my kids learn that as part of their social emotional learning at school, their SEL classes, they learn about grounding techniques and they learn about, you know, wiggling your toes to be like, okay, I'm going to call my toes. I'm going to look at something green. I'm going to look at something blue when I'm whatever it might be. And so I didn't tell like my younger kids just because I felt like that would be, you know, maybe they would panic if they heard the word panic attack, but I knew my older son had heard those words. And so I said, yeah, I woke up last night and I think I was having a panic attack, but this meditation helped me. And like, I think you've done some of these things just as part of your SEL learning in school. Like it actually is real because I think sometimes like with everything we learn in school, we're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and, and so I think having those conversations in your family of like, this is why I do this. This is why I meditate. This is why I go to therapy. Um, whether it's your immediate family or your extended family can help destigmatize things e- even within your family unit. Yeah. And, and to add to that, I think being obviously in an age appropriate way, open about whatever it is that you've struggled with, with Mm -hmm. your kids, Uh, you know, I think it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, you have to filter that so that you're not telling them things they're not ready to understand, um, or hear about, and each child is different and you know, your kids best, but being honest about like things you've struggled with, I, I think is so helpful. They need to know that it's normal to be worried. Like I was taking my son to camp and he was worried about starting his first day at camp and not knowing anybody. And would his friend be there? And, you know, and I was like, you know what, I had these same struggles when I was your age and I went through these things and I would feel like tightness in my chest. And he's like, yeah, I feel sick to my stomach. And just normalizing that for him made him go, okay, well, I'm going to go to camp now. (laughs) Right. It's like such basic things that nobody really understood how to do when I was a kid anyway. Um, and being able to just say those things, not make them shameful or judgy or any of that. Uh, I, it just makes such a huge difference for, for your kids and for yourself and for the people in your life. Yeah. And, you know, we, we know we need to wrap up. We clearly could talk about this for a very long time. So long. Um, But if you are not at the point where you feel comfortable sharing it within your community, within people that you like, you know, in your, your, your friends and family, basically, um, it is still so important that you have someone to share it with, whether it is a therapist, or I would recommend a therapist and a community of people. And there's communities out there, right? So there's um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. There's a website called understood.org that also actually has an app that we've been checking out and exploring. We learned about them at the Mom2 Summit. Um, There are a number of different organizations that are more culturally specific, right? So like the Loveland Foundation, um, help support black women and girls get access to mental health resources. Um, but there's quite a few, you know, if you, if you look it up, you can find different organizations, um, that will support you. And, you know, I know NAMI has virtual, um, meetings, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, but there are ways to find a community, um, even if you are not, 
you know, comfortable having that conversation within your immediate, you know, community. And I think it depends, you know, like if you live in a small town and things get out and you don't feel like you have a trusted person in that town, I can see why you don't want to share it with somebody. Yep. Um, but there are places. And I think, um, I know we always talk about taking care of yourself first. Um, but because the studies show that when a parent is deal or when a parent is dealing with a child's mental health issue, their mental health suffers. It is so, so very important that you are taking care of yourself during this time. Yeah. And just to add to that list of organizations, you know, there are multitudes of hotlines out there. If you are feeling like you are in crisis, please, please seek help immediately. Um, there is, there are resources out there. I would also add that, um, if you are struggling to find a therapist, a lot of the online therapy programs that came out sort of right before and during COVID are fantastic. And you can, um, find a great therapist that you can meet with online and the, you know, that, that can be a great option. So I think it's like better help. And I don't know, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. There's, there's better help. There's talk space, talk space. Um, exactly. There's another one. Also, I think, you know, if you do have insurance and especially if you have insurance through like a larger corporation, um, but, but a lot of insurances will cover the first five appointments, um, for a more traditional one, but also a lot of insurance companies now have, um, connections with BetterHelp and Talkspace. They're already relatively affordable comparatively. Right. Um, but if they're still cost prohibitive, look at your insurance and, and then also look at your employers because a lot of employers have even separate from their insurance, some mental health programs and support. Also, um, depending on where state you're in or what county you're in, there could be state and county programs that offer support. And it may not have um, anything to do with what you make. Like, you know, Riley and I both live in a fairly high cost of living area. And we recognize that you can still not have disposable income to pay for psychiatrists and therapists Mm -hmm. and still make way more than would be considered you know, low income, but there's a lot of states um, that do have programs that will provide you with support for free, um, especially in a time of crisis. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the most important thing to remember um, is that you are not alone dealing with this. Yeah. Whether it, you know, your own mental health struggle, a struggle with a child, a struggle with a spouse, a parent, um, you're not alone. Yeah. I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway that we can leave you guys with. Um, so that's, that's all we have for today. We're not giving you homework this week. Um, cause it's not really a homework appropriate show, but we will, we will be back next week with one more episode, uh, where we're going to engage in a conversation around neurodiversity and how that impacts us as human beings in, in the world. Um, and, uh, but until then everyone have a wonderful week, reach out to us anytime we are here to help. And, uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Thanks so much for listening to we go boldly podcast. We know you're busy and we love spending time with you. If you enjoyed this week's episode, let us know, head to Apple podcasts right now to rate and review our show. 
While you're there, be sure to click that subscribe button. Want more us time? Follow us on all the socials at Go Boldly Together. Want even more us time? As in all the coaching pizzazz. Find us at GoBoldlyInitiative.com for all the info. We will be back with more excitement, research, and deep thoughts next week. Until then, keep on being the bold, brave, amazing people we know you already are.